If your customer at the end of a year can't sit down with you and say, as a result of doing business with your company, the following things improved both climate and culture, but also business-wise as a result of doing business with you. If your clients can't have that conversation with you, you're not gonna stay with that client very long because they're gonna start to see you as just an interactive partner. And they're gonna start to look for somebody that's actually making a business impact. Welcome to The In Factor, conversations about how great entrepreneurs started, stumbled, and succeeded. I'm Rebecca White, and joining me on today's podcast is Ray Ingersoll. Ray is the founder and CEO of the Ingersoll Group, a highly unique sales, consulting, and training firm. Ray has worked with clients ranging from Fortune 25 companies to those with 25 employees. He is an esteemed alumnus and the 2019 Alumni Award winner here at the University of Tampa. In this interview, he unpacks just how he got started and his advice to entrepreneurs on how they can best position themselves to succeed. I hope you enjoy this episode. So I'm really excited to have you here with me today, Ray. You've been a friend to the Loth Entrepreneurship Center for a lot of years. You're a University of Tampa alum and a successful business person. You come back and spend a lot of time with students. And so it's really, really fun to have you here on the program with us today. So we've talked a little bit over the years about your company, the Ingersoll Group, and you started that about 2005, right. I think. Yeah. Yep. And since that time, you've worked with companies as small as 25 employees up to Fortune 25 companies. So you've had a wide range of companies that you've been working with. What are some of the key lessons and principles that you've learned that helped you build an excellent reputation? And while you're telling us about that, tell us a little bit more about what the Ingersoll Group does. Sure. And thanks for having me. This is very exciting. Really excited to have the chance to do it. So one of the things that we learned very early particularly when I started the firm, was that it was a crowded field. There's plenty of consulting firms out there. There's plenty of performance improvement and training companies out there. And one of the things that we wanted to focus very heavily on were two really key components that would differentiate us. One was we wanted to have skin in the game as to whether or not our clients saw success. Too many organizations show up and sell a product or a service and then run for the doors. Right. And they rely on the customer to either figure out a way to make what I just taught you work, or it's really not my fault. And we hand out our smiley review sheets, and we all know the tricks. We do everything on a scale of one to five, so the worst you're going to get is a three, which is better than average. We wanted to make sure that the firm was differentiated in a way that our paycheck depended on our clients. So if they saw business success, then we would share in that success. If they utilized us as a business then they, our fees would depend on whether or not they actually saw a business result from working with us. Starting the firm in 2005, 2006, that became a critical differentiator for us because not far down the road would be the massive recession. And we survived as a young firm at that point, three or four years old, right at that critical breaking point for most companies because whether it was a company of 25 people or a Fortune 25 company, all of them needed to be able to associate doing business with the Ingersoll Group to getting a business outcome. Anybody that was working in business back then that couldn't show their particular partner that you could use us 
to move a business lever, they didn't survive from 2008, 2009 to 2012 because companies wouldn't invest in something that they didn't see a tangible result for. So we built the firm, I built the firm, I, I always like to use the colloquial we, around this idea that in a crowded field of a lot of people, what are the best ways to differentiate? And for me, the best way to differentiate was really showing business outcomes to clients and tying our outcomes and our fees to those results. Second was easily the fact that we approached our clients in two very specific ways. You can go through training with us and we have everything from customer service training to sales training to social media, or you can just utilize us to strategize on key accounts that are important to your team and we'll help you close those. So we didn't just keep coming back year over year and saying it's time for another training class. That's the big mistake that organizations make is they use training as a check the box. We haven't done it in a while, maybe we should. Mm -hmm. Everything we read says employees want more training. Ours is outcome-based. Either you get an outcome with us or you don't pay us for some of that work. So we really differentiated ourselves very early on, not just from a, a crowded competitive field, but our clients can look to us and know that there's some kind of business result that they can tie directly to our work. So consulting arguably might be one of the easiest businesses to get into, but I think what I hear you say is it might be one of the toughest ones to exist in because there's so much competition and you've got to have that secret sauce. You have to. And your secret sauce was really that you don't get paid unless outcomes. Do you do you sit down with clients in the beginning and say, what are we going to achieve here? And then you structure your payment around that? Is it that pointed? Or it can it be, yes. So one of the things that I really emphasize on young entrepreneurs is if there's not a direct line, if your customer at the end of a year can't sit down with you and say, as a result of doing business with your company, the following things improved both climate and culture, but also business-wise as a result of doing business with you. If your clients can't have that conversation with you, you're not going to stay with that client very long because they're going to start to see you as just an interactive partner. And they're going to start to look for somebody that's actually making a business impact. So we sit down with every one of our clients at the end of their fiscal year, whether it's the calendar or a fiscal year, and we say, here's where you started with us a year ago. Here's where you hoped to be able to move your business as a result of working with us. What percentage of your improvement would you apply to working with the Ingersoll Group? What part of your million-dollar improvement in revenue would you say was a result of working with us? If they can't answer that, frankly, we think we're in trouble. Generally, they can because we work with them right up front. What business bar are you trying to move? Is it margin? Is it new sales? Is it existing sales? Is it customer retention? And we build a program just to move that business lever. And we work with them sometimes even on a monthly basis to make sure that we've got it. One of the biggest challenges that anyone who's starting a business can face is how to price their product or their service. Do you have any insights on pricing? How do you determine pricing at Ingersoll Group? So one of my biggest red flags that we've been running into with clients and even with students and even young salespeople 
is this drive to be constantly qualifying whether or not a customer is a good prospect as to whether or not they have any budget dollars set aside for you. So customers, and I see our clients do it all the time and I see students do it, one of their early qualifying questions is, what's your budget for this? Have you got money set aside for this? Well, it's like the old car salesman that said, what do I have to do to put you in this car today? Well, you can give it to me for nothing. And it doesn't challenge the salesperson or their clients and customers to think about the business issue that they're trying to solve. So what we do when we approach our clients and what we teach our clients to do a better job of is understand the breadth and depth of the business issue they're suffering from and get them to quantify the impact that it has on them. Once a client can say, Ray, if we can just improve our sales by 4%, that's an extra $15 million in revenue that we need to be able to continue to operate effectively and grow. The minute we have that quantifiable problem from a client, we now have that in our pocket. And the next question is the easiest one that you can ask. What do you think is a reasonable investment to get a $15 million return? Obviously, $10,000 can't get us there. What do you think is a reasonable investment to solve a $15 million problem? Even if they just say 10%, that's a million and a half bucks. I can promise you I wasn't going to charge them a million and a half dollars, right? Your product may not cost a million and a half dollars. But now instead of saying, what are you willing to set aside to do business with me? Now I'm saying, what do you think you should invest? for me to help you solve a $15 million problem. No matter what number they give you back, you now have a number to work with both on pricing, fees, and the quantifiable impact you can have for that company. So it's not, do you have money for me now? It's what are you willing to invest to solve a big problem that I can help you with that you haven't been able to solve without me? How many consultants do you have now working with you? So we've got 29 consultants, about 17 of which we can keep busy all the time. The others are either facilitators that come in to run a program or they're subject matter resources that we reach to when we work inside of a particular industry. So we're getting close to that 30 mark, which is pretty crazy when you think of the Ingersoll group. I like to joke, when I started the Ingersoll group, there was no group. It was me and the dog. And, and <laughs> that was your group. Now we actually are a group. So What's the dog's cool. name? It was Pepper. Pepper. So yep. Ray and Pepper. That was it. <laughs> that was group. us. Yep. I love that. Why did you start the Ingersoll Group? Did you just have to get a paycheck or was there something else involved there? It's a great question. I get asked that a lot. And I think I still search for that one kind of event that led me to do it. I would say the biggest thing that led me to do it, I had spent some time in the performance improvement industry. Then I took about a year and a half almost two years off and worked for a presidential campaign back in 2000. Coming out of that campaign, I had the opportunity to work with a smaller consulting firm in Austin, Texas. And one of the things that that gave me an opportunity to see wasn't just the training and the sales and the performance improvement side. It gave me a chance to look at the consulting side and what do people really pay for and what do they get? And after spending just a couple years there, that gets me into that 2004 range, I really believed a couple things. I had a big enough ego like we all do when we start our own businesses to think I could do it a little better. But what I really saw was a big gap between what performance improvement companies and consulting firms said they were going to deliver 
and whether or not they ever followed up to see if they did. And that goes back to that big differentiator, which I still think is the most important thing to anybody thinking about starting their own business, regardless of what the field is, is that if you can't move business measures for your companies and for your clients, you're not going to have them for long. And the performance improvement and training industry has been notorious for saying, you wanted people to learn this. I taught them. Now it's up to you. We don't do that. So for me, I thought I could do it better. I saw areas in which I thought there could be improvement. But the biggest differentiator for me was nobody wanted to have skin in the game, and they still don't. The majority of our competitors will not do this shared risk kind of environment. Now, it'll keep you awake at night because you better be good at what you say. I bet. But for us, it was the significant reason why we've been able to keep growing year over year over year despite economic upturn and downturn because they know they can rely on us to move a business lever. So, Ray, I know a little bit about your background. I know you came to the University of Tampa and met your wife here. I did. And I know you played some sports. Did you play basketball here? I did. I was on the basketball, basketball team basketball here. here. Yeah. And then you came back and worked here for a while in the admissions office, I think. When you were growing up, would your family, your friends have said, you know, I know someday Ray is going to be running an international company that does consulting for companies of all sizes, training and teaching them, would that have been expected? Or was there something else that you or they sort of had in mind for you? I don't know if seeing me as running an international company would have been on the top of the yearbook <laughs> list. It'll come as no surprise to you and those that know me. I did win most talkative when I was a senior in high school. <laughs> politics had always interested me. I was interested in politics at a really young age. I was also very interested in organizations that work directly with kind of younger students and younger children. So a little peek into maybe some early entrepreneurship. I was the vice president for an organization up in New York called REACH, and it stood for Responsible Educated Adolescents Can Help. And what we did is we traveled around to smaller school systems and spoke to elementary schools about drugs and alcohol awareness and the dangers of it, how to avoid getting caught into bad positions. And it really grew and developed. And as a result of that, my senior year, I was awarded the Congressional Medal of Merit from the United States Congress and Senate. That peaked a little bit more of a political interest, yeah. but it also kind of showed some early entrepreneurship leanings. And I'm still very proud of the work that we did up in New York when we did it. Over the years, it has spread and, and changed its name over time, but it's really now a much more national program. So I think I had little fits and starts when it came to entrepreneurship. I would say that it really wasn't until I took time a little bit away from the straight up business environment, spent time doing a lot of work on the campaign, that I started to realize that I wanted to have more of a national footprint at the time. I never thought that we would have international clients and, and have offices you know, all around. So I think the work on that campaign and spending time in different parts of the country with very different focus started to lean me a little more toward an entrepreneurship track. Mm -hmm. A friend of mine just wrote a book about when to leave your job to start your business, quitting. And I wonder, you know, I'm curious about your experience there and your risk tolerance. When you started this company, you mentioned sleepless nights. What was it like to 
walk away from getting paid and getting a paycheck and take on the responsibility. I'm guessing, were you married at that time and did you have a family? And- I was absolutely married at the time. I'm happy to say I'm still married as a result of that decision. That's great. Yes. yes. So a wonderful lady. Absolutely. So I joke sometimes about the decision and the way that I broached it with my wife. Our kids were seven and five at the time. And we were at the dinner table and I said to my wife, Catherine, I said, you know, honey, I think I'm just going to start my own firm. And the very next thing Catherine said was, kids, go to your room. <laughs> and and I joke that is basically kind of how it went because there was a big risk at that point. And I was really proud of what I had done. And, and I'd certainly spent a lot of time working up. I was a vice president of a big, large global company. It was not easy to make the decision. The sleepless nights certainly occur pretty quickly after you make your decision because just like many people that have decided they want to go the entrepreneurship route, part of it has been because of the feedback they've gotten from friends, other companies they've worked for, customers they've dealt with in the past that always like to say, boy, if you ever started your own company, you call me. I would love to be your first client. Well, I made a list that was pretty deep. And it's funny how when you really make the phone call and say, remember when you told me three years ago to call you when I start my, and the first thing, oh, if only you called me a year ago. (laughs) If only I had budget. Why don't we wait six months? And that list gets small in a hurry. And one of the things that I really, I think, focused hard on was making sure that when I did introduce myself, I didn't introduce myself as a new company. I introduced myself as the same person they trusted when I did business with them in the past, or the same person that's worked very hard in college, worked very hard at basketball. I've got a track record of good performance. All I want is the opportunity to help your organization improve a little. The talk track of being able to say to them, you're only going to pay me unless you see improvement as well. It's a gutsy thing to say right off the bat. Right. But- If you can deliver, and I've been lucky that I've really surrounded myself with folks that are far superior to me, and we can deliver on that. But those sleepless nights come pretty quick when you realize everybody that said they would be in line, that line gets short in a hurry. So it's a lot of hustling. I didn't take any money out. I didn't take any loans. I've never had a partner. I didn't take money from family. It was just me. So I put a lot of pressure on myself to perform well quickly, and we were lucky. I worked really hard. We landed a couple very large clients early, let you sleep at night a little bit better, but it's still those first couple years are tough. So I hear that a lot from students, whether they're working or full-time or whether they're full-time students, they don't know when the right time is to take that leap. I guess it's when you just can't do otherwise, right? You're so passionate about it and so excited about it that you're just willing to take on that. Absolutely. Those sleepless nights. And and I tell students all the time, if you're looking for the perfect time, it never shows up. It doesn't. And your business will continue to grow and you'll face decisions like that. When do I add people? When do I think about actually having real estate in an office? When I first got approached about opening up an office internationally, I thought, there's no way I want to try that. It's a big risk. We've never done that before. We've never had to deal with other countries' employment laws and hiring laws and HR. But I'm glad I did. Yeah, you're in a number of different countries now. We are. So we've got offices now in Canada. We've got offices in the UK. We've got offices in Australia. So we've expanded with our customers and our clients and have been lucky to be able to do that. But it still makes me nervous. 
Yeah, I'm sure it does. So have you had mentors along the way or heroes maybe in business that have inspired you? Sure. My dad was and continues to be in one level or another in sales his whole career. So it was fun watching him and he was the great dad that everybody wants, right? He worked really hard. He showed me what work ethic was. He coached me in different sports and teams. And so seeing him in that environment kind of really always leaned me towards some kind of sales environment. But I also wanted to be able to, and and that's one of the things that you worry about sometimes when you start your own business is, am I going to have time for my seven and five-year-old? And right. in those first few years, it's tough on everybody. You know, you're really making a decision to really, if you're going to do it right, really put a lot of hours in. 80 and 90 hours a week were nothing. That was very common when I got started. And sometimes it's still common. So I would say my dad, and of course, playing sports, particularly coming here to the University of Tampa, Coach Richard Schmidt is still the head coach here at the University of Tampa, even from my days way back when. And of course, that athletic environment, particularly at a collegiate level, was important for me. Had a big impact. It did. You know, our student athletes have to work really hard to succeed in class and and on the field. So I think that you learn a lot of those lessons. I do too. Let's move to talking about sales. So a lot of our listeners are either entrepreneurs or nascent entrepreneurs. And, you know, the other day I was listening to one of our student founders here in the center and he was on a sales call and I'd been pushing him to get his product out there because he wants to raise money, but he hasn't really proven it in the marketplace. So I was pushing him on that. And one of my staff members told me they overheard him on the phone call and he was asking for the sale and whoever he was talking to said, no, evidently. And he said, well, if you change your mind, let me know. Are there some mistakes in that response? And could you talk to us a little bit about if you had the chance to tell, you know, entrepreneurs or nascent entrepreneurs a few techniques, a few key things about sales, what would you tell them? Sure. I think that particular student was going to be told no in the first minute and a half. And it may have been a half hour phone call. But the biggest mistake that entrepreneurs, particularly sometimes students, make when they're just starting to get started is they know a lot about their business and their product, but they don't take the time to learn about the business environment of the person that they're speaking to. I had the opportunity a few years ago when I was given this great opportunity to spend some time at the Entrepreneurship Center on the Board of Advisors to go and listen to one of the professors speak to their class, and then I got a chance to speak to them as well. And what they were working on was the good old phrase, elevator speeches. Right. And I'm okay with elevator speeches. We've been doing them now for 100 years in sales. And I took a little different tack in the classroom, and I said... You know, the best elevator speech now isn't what can you say about your company from the 10th floor to the bottom? It's turning to the person in the elevator and saying, what do you do at your business? Why are you at this conference? What were you hoping to get out of your time at this industry meeting? What do you see as your biggest challenges that brought you here? Hopefully, by the time you get to the lobby, they've mentioned business challenges they have that your product or service can address. And now you've got something to talk about. I think far too many of the young entrepreneurs and quite frankly, even our clients that are tenured and have been doing it for years, still focus way too heavily on their contribution and their product and how their product works. And they're not tying it 
to what the environment that person they're speaking to is in. So I consistently and repeatedly, I just spoke in Barcelona, Spain to a global leadership summit. And I said, if the first thing you ask of somebody isn't, what are your challenges and what are you struggling with? And if they say, tell me about the Ingersoll group, the first thing you better say is, I could go on about the Ingersoll group for half an hour. I would rather spend 20 minutes learning about your company. So what I tell you about the Ingersoll group matters to you and your business. Too many early entrepreneurs just want to talk about their product and then close hard. That's really not going to be as, as effective as it was 30 or 40 years ago, which is how we were all taught. Right, right. We were all taught, talk about your business and then close as hard as you possibly can. Yep. The other thing too is I still think young entrepreneurs and new business owners still take no from people that can't say yes. They spend time speaking to anybody they can get their hands on and that's great for practice. But not if you think you've got one opportunity to sell your wares to a particular business, then don't try to close somebody that can't make the final decision anyway. Right. So too often they're just excited that somebody said, I'll listen to you. I'm not saying you don't go, but don't ask for the business from somebody that's just giving you a chance to talk to them. Save that close for when you understand their business and have somebody in the room that can actually make that decision. So it really goes back to doing your research, doing your homework, asking way more questions. What's that saying that our mothers always told us we have two ears, right, and one mouth? Absolutely. Same kind of thing. Absolutely. That's great advice. I love it. You know, I've heard you give a speech also on the power of no. Can you kind of give us a little bit of a summary of what you mean by that, the power of no? Sure. And I remember that speech, by the way. I remember giving it. And I was shocked. And I think maybe to a certain extent, you and I have talked about some of your students mm -hmm. are shocked when we tell them, has anybody told you that your idea is bad yet? And students just kind of looked at me like, why would I talk to somebody that says my product is bad? The power of no is incredibly important when you're both designing your engagement in any industry, whether it's a product, whether it's a service, whether you want to become more of a consultant, or whether you're building something that's going to change the way people do everyday things like lift weights or work out. We've seen students do that. If somebody hasn't told you no or said to you, here are the three reasons that I think your product's going to fail, you need to find somebody to tell you no. Because it's in those little defeats, it's in those challenges, it's when somebody says, I think you're wrong, that you really have the opportunity to fine tune and develop your entryway into any industry or any business side. I don't necessarily mean that you should go out with this idea that you're going to fail, but somebody somewhere better say there's something you can improve before you start really attacking a customer base. It's pretty dangerous to go out there thinking everything's going to fall right in line. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because then you're going to have more time, more money, way more resources invested before you get to that no, right? And then you've got to figure it out. So the sooner the better almost. Absolutely. And I will say that we spend more time at my firm studying our losses than we do celebrating our wins. It's an absolute necessity that when something doesn't go the way that you planned, you find out why. We've gone so far as to offer gift cards to clients that have said no to us if they'll just talk to us for 30 minutes about why. So Great I am- idea. I love it. I'm 
passionate about when I get told no. And we need to figure out why that is. Don't shy away from somebody saying, we think you're wrong. Because those are the people that are going to challenge you to make sure that when you do have an opportunity in front of somebody the next time, you filled in those gaps, whether you believe that they're there or not. So, you know, I don't remember if we've talked about this, but I've had students that have been very upset by the idea of failure as part of the process to success. And I think, you know, this is something that all of us struggle with, failure, outcomes not being what we wanted. Along the way, I'm sure you've had a few of those. Would you like to talk a little bit about how you deal with that? Because I think it is hard to hear no. It is hard for the outcome not to be what you want. It is hard to fail. And so all of us need to probably build up some kind of a system or a method or a safety net that helps us get through that. Do you have any thoughts on that? And could you share kind of how you deal with failures or? Sure. You know, early in my career, when I finally got into more of a sales environment, it was an environment that nowadays doesn't exist anymore. I was working for a company that sold long distance phone service to businesses. And I joke when I speak with students, yes, there was a time where you had to pay for a phone call if you called somebody that lived more than 30 miles away. Yeah, I remember that. (laughs) Yeah, I remember it too. Nobody else seems to. And a big, big component of it was cold calling. And I know students don't like it. I didn't like it. I still cold call to this day. If I drive by a business that looks interesting, I still walk in and try to see if I can find the owner. It's just ingrained in me. But there is a lot of no's and there is a lot of failure attached to that. With students that are going through a big volume of contacts to try to get their foot in the door, the easiest thing that I used to do was I would take whatever my last win was, and it would be a dollar figure of some kind, and I would divide it by however many phone calls it took me to get that meeting. And every time I made a phone call and somebody was mean to me or hung up or said, don't ever call again, I would hang up and say, thanks for the buck and a half. Thanks for the two (laughs) bucks. Next call I make, they say, no, that's another two bucks. I mean, I'm building my way toward the success. And I think if you look at it that way, even though it's a little simplistic, I think that's a good way to realize that not everybody's going to welcome you with open arms, but every single interaction you have is one step closer to that win. At the level that I'm at now with the firm, Our losses are a little bit larger when they happen and they still happen. Nobody bats perfect thousand percent. For us, what we've learned is we have generally made a mistake and we really analyze where did we go wrong in that interaction where we thought we were going to win and we didn't. Too often, young entrepreneurs and even clients of ours that have been in business, we have a client that's been around for 168 years. They're based in San Antonio, Texas. Great client. They started eight or nine years after the Alamo, their business, and they're still going at it. And one of the things that even they'll say sometimes is, well, they just made a mistake. That customer is wrong. They should have gone with us and they'll never be successful without us. You can't do that. You have to be able to look inward and realize if we were the best solution and they chose somebody else, we've made a mistake somewhere. We didn't hit something that was critical to them. That's why on the failure side, we analyze our losses so closely. If you don't analyze those losses and look at them objectively, you're going to start making that mistake over and over again. And that's when you run into trouble. 
That's where you think you're doing things well, but you're not. It sounds like perhaps your father was an influence in all this, but also that you actually got a lot of practice hearing no before you started your company. So maybe that's not a bad first job for a lot of students when they come out to try sales just to learn the skills and get used to hearing no. And, Absolutely. And build up. It sounds like you also use a lot of systems dealing with failure and dealing with loss and success in your company. We do. You know, reinventing the wheel is an old phrase, but we still see particularly younger entrepreneurs try to do it, which is they have a success and they just leave that success behind and they don't analyze what got them there and they just start jumping in front of people again. Same thing happens with losses. You've really got to analyze those to make sure that you're not only correcting them for the future, but it also allows you to start to differentiate yourself and have different kinds of conversations with your customers that they might otherwise not be hearing from your competitors. Right. You know, when I look back, I know the first jobs I got offered out of school were sales, and I never wanted to do it. But the thing that helped me think about sales was when I thought about solving customer problems as opposed to selling. And I guess that's that turning it around and understanding the customer. It makes it a lot more acceptable sometimes to think about. You know, there's this debate in entrepreneurship about whether entrepreneurs are born that way or whether or not we can actually train people to be entrepreneurs. What do you think about that? Do you have any thoughts on whether entrepreneurs are born or built? I do. I think you and I have talked about this on and off over the years. And I think back when I started the firm, I might have said that they're built because I had had experience outside of entrepreneurship before I did it. But now I do realize that there's a little bit of both involved. You know, you do have to have certain things inside of you, whether it's a drive and a passion for whatever you're thinking of doing. The ability to take no's is still critical and not everybody can take them quite as well. I think you also have to have the ability to realize that you might have to change both the way in which you're approaching your customers, but also the way in which you're analyzing your business. You have to be able to let certain things go that aren't working properly. And it's very difficult sometimes for folks to do that. And I think that's the born side. I think some people can look at things and say, you know, I realize now, even though I put all of the sweat and tears into it, that I need to approach it differently. I need to change the way that I'm approaching customers. I need to change the way I'm building my product. I've been able to watch many students now over the last few years at the Entrepreneurship Center where their business starts in a very different place than where it ends, but it always seems to end successfully. And it's because they had that ability to kind of turn off something that was going in the wrong direction and correct it. I do think part of that has to do with the building part. I think the Loth Entrepreneurship Center and what you and the other faculty do with students now is critical, which is you're building them to be much more strategic than kind of myopic, meaning it doesn't matter what your major is. It doesn't matter what your study was. I was a psychology major. So the idea that I'm running a national, international, multi-million dollar business wasn't exactly in the cards during my senior year in my psych classes. But I learned things in other classes that we did that kind of sent me down the right path to be able to handle it. So I think it's a little bit of both. I've gotten a lot more now where I do think entrepreneurship can be built, but there are those essentials that drive the ability to be able to stick to it when things get tough. 
that is difficult to teach somebody to do. They've either got to have it or they don't. You know, it's interesting because you have a background as an athlete. And I would say part of it also is coachability. So I think people bring passion. They bring a drive and a motivation maybe to the table. But you've got to be coachable because a lot of those entrepreneurs that you were talking about, those students and early stage entrepreneurs that have to pivot, they need to be coachable by wiser people that have been down that path, but also by their own customers, wouldn't you say? Definitely. Because I'm sure you get coached all the time from your customers and your clients. And so you have to be able to listen to that and look at the situation objectively. You can't take every piece of advice, right? Right. But you have to be willing to be open to that, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. The big crux, particularly in kind of those middle years for us, the reason we were able to grow so effectively is we let our customers draw us into needs that they had, whether or not we were experts at them or not. I'll give you two great examples. When I started the firm, we were very highly focused on the sales side of training and, of course, the account acquisition side on the consulting side. We would consistently get asked by customers to do customer service training, and I would say no because that wasn't a thing that we were experts in. I didn't want to just do an okay job. I wanted to them to see the same success, but they stayed after us. And we realized if our customers are really asking for this and our clients are saying it's important to them, then we need to get good at it. So we took a year and a half. I hired some people to come in just that had customer service experience. And we took a year and a half and went to symposiums and we spent time in DC and it was a nice place to go, but we went to San Diego for a week and we went to a bunch of different meetings and conferences and started to learn what really mattered to get results out of customer service and what were they trying to attain and what were they trying to get. We then went back to our very first customer that came to us and said, would you do customer service? And we said, no. Said, now we're ready to do it. We built content. We spent a year and a half studying it. We've done some case studies, but we're going to do it for you for nothing because we don't know if we've got it nailed yet or not. So it's not going to cost you anything for us to try this on you for the first time. Our customer service revenue, that would have been 2011, went from doing it for nothing to a 7 to $8 million piece of our business now. So listen to your customers. Listen to what they're struggling with. Listen to where they're trying to get to and let them guide you, not what you think the next step for your product should be, not that you think you should add on a different color. That's not the way to go. Let your customers kind of pull you where they see their business struggles and then try to come up with a solution for them. That's great advice. I love that. So this has been great. I think we could talk for a long time. I love all your insights on thinking about how to understand the customer and how to build companies. But I usually like to wrap up these conversations with one very tough question, and that is if there was only one piece of advice that you could share with our listeners here at the end, what would that be? I've thought a lot about this. You were nice enough to let me see these questions ahead of time. I knew this was coming. I've said this now for quite a few years, and it still rings true. I always tell particularly young entrepreneurs or even people that are just starting their businesses, build your company as if. And what I mean by that is build for the success that you expect to get. And if you want to be a major player in whatever industry you're going in, and that means that someday you may have 300 employees and seven factories, 
and a bunch of laptops around your organization, then start to build your organization like that early on. And the example I give them is the first thing I did about a year into my firm was I built an org chart and said, if I'm really successful at this and I last 10 years and now we've lasted 15 or 16 years, which is great, what will I need in my organization in order to be as successful as those companies that have lasted that long and gotten this big and are doing 30 or $40 million a year? And I started to very early on say, when will I know I need to add people in different places? And it was just me and the dog. I built an org chart as if there were 30 or 40 of us or 50 of us. And when would I need to add resources to stay effective? My blind spot, my biggest concern, many people joke with me that know me that the reason I started my own firm was because I didn't want to have to do any more math. <laughs> so I knew very- Sound like my husband. <laughs> absolutely. So I knew very early on that when time and pressure came on me and I really had to start focusing on invoicing and paying the right commissions and getting bills out, which by the way, I did every third Thursday of the month at two in the morning. I set aside that time to be able to do bills and pay people and make sure checks. Why two in the morning? That's the only time I had. That's when you had available. I, that's what I had available. So once I started doing that, I started to realize when I looked at my org chart, I'm spending too much time doing something that I'm not an expert at. That triggered me to start hiring a finance person and then start thinking about having a CFO. When I realized we've gotten up to three or four or five people, everybody's got a laptop, we're working on networks. I'm like most people, I know just enough to be dangerous in the IT world. I knew it was time to find somebody that I could lean on to be able to help us with the IT parts. Then it came to marketing. Then we hired a branding company to help us with our brand and start thinking things. You can't do it all. And that org chart that you build when you're just thinking about the early parts of your company You've got to be thinking about when do I bring on resources that are better at something than I am? And it's when you realize you're in one of those little boxes on the org chart that you're really not that great at. Now you know that it's time to start thinking about putting somebody in that slot. Love it. Love it. That's great advice. And the other thing I'll take away is it's always helpful to have the dog, right? It is. When everybody else was saying no, the dog still loved you, right? She was laying right there. Every time somebody said no, she was right at my feet. So that's it was great. a big part. That's great. Ray, this has been wonderful. Great advice for anybody who wants to be successful, I think, in any way, but especially in entrepreneurship. How can our listeners find you if they would like to connect? Oh, well, great. And thank you for having me. This is been great. I, and you're right. I'd be happy to stay here as long as you wanted. It's funny when we started the firm and for many of us, when we started businesses, social media wasn't kind of what it is now. It's still the best way to find me. I'm on LinkedIn. You can find me in there. It's just Ray Ingersoll. You can always go to our website. My marketing team would go crazy if I didn't send you to our website, which is just IngersollGroupInc.com, two L's in Ingersoll. But social media is still a great way to be able to find me. I'm, I'm on it all the time. Of course, we have Twitter accounts and elsewhere, but LinkedIn is still probably the best way to go. And quite frankly, anybody that goes there, I've got to be close to a couple thousand connections and they're more than welcome to go through our connections and take a look at organizations that we might be able to help you get in touch with. Thank you, Ray. My pleasure. <laughs>